Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 12. And guess what? Believe it or not, I think that next week we're actually going to finish our series on Hebrews. And some of you may be sad and some of you may be very happy that we're moving on to something else. But it's been very beneficial for me. I've enjoyed it myself. But tonight, or today, not, not tonight, today, we're, we're, it feels like tonight, with my body, I'm, I could go to sleep right now, but uh, we're going to be at Hebrews chapter 12. My family loves to watch movies. I don't know how many of you, any, any movie buffs here, you like to watch movies. I know a few of you here, I know you like that, but it's one of the real treats for us, one of the things we really enjoy doing when we have a chance where the whole family is together, which is increasingly more rare as my daughters are getting older, we, one of our favorite things is to gather around uh, in the living room and to watch a movie and enjoy that together. But we, we've done that for a long time. And my, my daughters have always liked movies, but, but my oldest daughter, Erin, when she was very, very young, it was always kind of funny to me because she would want to watch movies, but then she would hide her face, if, not if something happened, but if she was afraid that something was going to happen that she didn't want to see. So she'd be sitting there and all of a sudden she'd cover her eyes and we'd be like, it's okay, nothing bad is happening here. But she wouldn't believe us, she would cover her eyes. A great example of that was the horrifyingly frightening movie of Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. I mean, Aaron loved Beauty and the Beast. But the thing about Beauty and the Beast was she didn't want to see all the parts of it. You know, it's got some kind of scary scenes in it, there, and there are parts that, that she didn't like at all. And then there are other parts of the, of the movie that she just really loved. Like, 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 for example, she really, 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 really loved the, the beginning of the movie when Belle was walking through town singing and getting her book. She loved that part. And, and she really liked the part when, when later on in the movie when Belle comes down the staircase in the golden gown and she dances with that giant dog that's wearing a suit. You, you know, some of you, you don't know with me, and that's all right, I don't care. You'll get to me. You. But she really liked the part where all of the dinner place settings dance and celebrate because there's a guest in the castle. She liked certain scenes, but that's all she liked. She didn't like the, the, the dark scenes where the beast was really mean and aggressive, and she didn't like it when Gaston and the beast fought each other. It scared her and, and unnerved her. She didn't want to look at it. She just liked all the pretty parts. But here's the thing, if the only part she ever saw was the pretty part, she could never really understand the story. She didn't understand that this was a, a man who was cruel to an enchantress, and I almost feel sorry for myself for knowing all these things, you know, like how do I know, how do I know these sort of things? It's a, but she didn't know that that's who the beast was, and he was changed into a beast. She, she, she didn't get the story. She, all, for her, all it was was a dog in a suit dancing with a pretty girl. That's all, that's all she cared about. She didn't understand that this was a man who had been deformed and, and that only love could bring him back around. She didn't get that storyline at all because she never wanted to look at the scary, dark, difficult parts. And I think about that and I realize that is exactly how we are as Christians. I mean, we love the happy parts, don't we? We love that God is gracious and loving. We love that he restores and that he brings hope. And we, we love to hear 
all those things about God. In fact, we'll come to church to hear about that God because he is pretty and he is very nice and he's very much about us. And, and since we are all basically self-centered, we like hearing about that God. We, we don't, however, like hearing about other parts of, of his attributes that might be a little scarier for us. And whether it's on purpose or whether it's by accident, we often have this tendency to view God incompletely because we like the happy, shiny parts, the pretty parts, but we don't want to consider the more difficult parts. You know, I mean, listen, it's, it's not by chance that many of the most popular books among uh, churchgoers and evangelicals today are about how to be blessed or maybe how to avoid suffering. It's not, and it's not by the way, it's not that those books are necessarily wrong or bad, but we just don't buy very many books about suffering and pain and heartache. And the problem is, if we don't have a biblical view of suffering, then when suffering comes, instead of us responding in a way that honors Christ and helps us to grow, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, we will respond with bitterness and we'll give up. We're, we're, you'll understand a lot more by the time we do it. Today we're, we're in Hebrews 12, and it is, a, it is a difficult text. It does get better toward the end, but one of the reasons you know I do like to preach uh, or I like to teach through a book is because when you do that, it won't let you dodge the hard things. Like, you know, when I, I told you we were going to preach through Hebrews, so I can't decide to skip it now. You know, I can't say, well, not all of Hebrews, just, just the fun parts. You know, I can't do that it, it, because if you don't know the hard part, you don't know the whole story. Are you tracking with me there, there? If you don't know the hard parts, then what we have is just a girl in a dress dancing with a big dog in a suit. Right. So that brings us today. It is it is heavy. It is weighty and it is God. And today, today can be it might be hard for some of us here today because this just tends to be off the evangelical radar. So now that you are just beaming with excitement and anticipation, let's get after it. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin reading in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. That, that word is important, such hostility, because it's not talking about the uh, amount of uh, degree of hostility. He's talking about hostility that is similar. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know, when, when we started this study, uh, when we started walking through the book of Hebrews, we said that this book was written to Christians who were being culturally attacked. The, the culture that they found themselves in was very antagonistic and violent towards the gospel, which, by the way, is much is our culture is becoming more and more similar to this because uh, our culture is becoming more and more antagonistic and and more and more violently opposed to the gospel. So maybe we need to pay attention to what he's saying here because this is much of the culture in which we live today. 
So, so they, that's where they lived. They lived in a culture that, that was very antagonistic, very violent towards the gospel. They were being put into prison and they were having their stuff stolen, stolen from them while they were in prison just because they were Christian. And then when they would go visit their friends that were in prison, the people who were visiting the ones in prison were having their stuff stolen from them and they were having the right to buy and sell removed from them. It was just a very, very, very difficult time for these believers. And now here's the thing, though. We have gone through 11 chapters and God has not yet addressed their suffering at all. Think about that. I mean, they're going through this stuff every single day and they're reading this letter and, and we're, we're almost to the end and, and, their, and their suffering has not even really been brought up. In, in chapter 12, he's finally going to address their suffering. And he's, he's saying here in verse 3, consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such things. So the same hostility that you are now enduring, Jesus himself endured. That's the comparison here. Now look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, okay, he's saying you do have it bad. I want you to know I'm not saying that you have it easy. Things are very, very difficult for you right now. There are sinful men harming you and you've got it bad. I understand that. But he says, but you have not resisted to the point of Christ who was killed. Or even those that we just read about, some of those in the end of chapter 11 that were mentioned that were sawn in two or they were tortured or they were stoned to death or those kinds of things. He's saying, yes, you are enduring some of the same hostility from sinners that Jesus endured, but you have not endured yet to the point of death in your struggle against sin. He uses that phrase. Now I want to ask you a question because this is a very important thing for us to understand what's going on in this passage. Against Whose sin are they struggling? Here's the, here's the thing. They are not struggling in this context. They are not struggling against their own sin. They're struggling against the sin of others. It's other people that are, that are, that are torturing them. It's other people that are persecuting them. It's other people that are throwing them into prison. They're not struggling with their own sin. They're struggling against the sin of others. Other men and, uh, uh, are committing acts of sin, acts of violence toward them. This is not their sin. He's saying in your battle with other people's beha sinful behavior, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, here where, here's where this thing, after he says this, this is where it begins to get off the radar for most of us because it's, this thing is going to get hard for us to look at and be able to swallow. Let's look at it. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Now I want to do a little wordsmithing there to help us understand there because discipline can mean a lot of different things. But the word discipline here does not mean punishment. Sometimes when we, when we think about disciplining our children, we think it means punishing our children. Well, it may include punishment, but it's a lot disciplining our kids is about a lot more than just punishing bad behavior, right? So it, what it means here, it talks about training. So he says, do not regard lightly the training of the Lord. Now, to be honest, you're, you're going to have to think punishment in a minute because he's just going to say it. So here we go. Nor be weary when repro reproved by him for the Lord disciplines. Again, that's, he trains the one he loves 
And then he says, and chastises every son whom he receives. Now that part is about punishment. Now let me tell you why this thing is just off the radar for most of us. What, what just happened in, in the scriptures, it, it just said that the sinful acts of men and women perpetrated towards followers of Christ ultimately serve whose purpose? God's purpose. God just said that the violent aggression of men and women towards believers, he says, those are tools in my hand. It doesn't mean that he makes them do it, but he says when they do it, I'm involved in this, in this situation. I'm involved in this process one way or another. In reading this, we, we ha I think we have to ask our question, why is it happening like this? Why in the world is God playing it like this? Why does he allow these things to take place in our lives? Why doesn't God just protect those who follow him from unbelievers who want to hurt it? Hurt, hurt, not, not hurt him, but hurt them. Well, the good news is he doesn't just abandon us to wonder. He answers the question beginning in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, all, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And another translation, you, instead of using the word pleasant, it says rather than joyful. Now, this is important because I think a lot of us ha have been taught that because we know Jesus, we have to always be all right. That we have to be okay. We think we always have to smile and, we ha and things always have to be great even when they're not. And, we, and if somebody says, well, how are you doing? Instead of saying, man, I'm having a rough, a rough day, we think that we have to say, I'm blessed even when we don't feel that way. And, and Scripture just says, hey, listen, God uses pain caused by other people to train us. And when God trains us, when He reproves, when He disciplines, when He chastises us, it is not pleasant. It is not joyful. I, 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 I remember a number of years ago, it was actually the 2006 Rose Bowl some of you may remember that if you're a football fan, but USC was playing the University of Texas in the Rose Bowl, and that was a really exciting national championship game. And, and near the end of the game, Vince Young, the Texas quarterback, scored a, a touchdown to put Texas up by one point with 19 seconds left to play. And after the touchdown, te Texas went for a two-point conversion to try to seal the victory, and they made that two-point conversion. But, but all that to say this, there is a picture that was taken uh, uh, just as Texas scored, and in this picture, you see the USC cheerleaders along the back row. I think we've got a picture of it. You can see it there. It's not a very clear picture, but you can see, you can see there all the Texas players with their hand, arms up going, touchdown, we just took the lead. But you notice in the back, you see the one USC cheerleader 
that just as all of USC's hopes and dreams are going down the drain, she is cheering for the other team. Do you see that back there? She's got her pom-poms up and she's like, hey! You see that? So all of USC's hopes and dreams for, for actually a three-peat of a national championship go down in flames and the USC cheerleader celebrates. And I see that and I remember that moment and I cannot help but think, that's us. That's us. We're like, oh, this is so miserable. Oh, this really hurts. Praise the Lord. I'm happy in Jesus. And we think we have to be a cheerleader even when we're hurting. Listen, the truth is, it's not always chipper. Sometimes life stings. Sometimes life hurts. And we don't celebrate. And I'm not saying you can still celebrate and be happy that you have Jesus. But I'm saying there are times when life just is painful. You, hear me, you don't have to pretend to be all right. You hear me? If you're not all right, the worst thing you can do is to, is to pretend to be all right because then nobody around you is going to know that they need to encourage you. Sometimes we don't re receive the encouragement. We need, now listen, I'm not saying go overboard. You know, there's some people that just have to have everything. They have to have a problem all the time because they thrive on the attention of other people. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being honest with the few people that you can trust. I'm not talking about being the person that's always, you know, a Debbie Downer. That's like, uh, you know, you just received a thousand dollar check in the mail. And you're like, yeah, but now I got to pay taxes on it. You know, it's like, come on, really? You know, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but I'm just saying, if you're not all right, you don't have to pretend to be all right. If you're really hurting, you can, you can be honest with people that you trust, people in the body of Christ around you that you've grown closer to. If you're dying on the inside, it's okay to be dying on the outside. You don't have to pretend that you're okay when you're not okay. That's what I want you to hear today about this. You need to know that. You just need to flush, so we, we, we should just flush so much of our religious jargon garbage down the toilet. Let me just tell you this. If you ever have a friend who opens up to you and is honest with you about how they're just dying on the inside, how they're hurting so deeply, you, don't, you need to know they do not need nice religious platitudes from you, right? If they're weeping, don't tell them that they shouldn't be weeping, Weep with, with them. Don't, don't try to give answers because it's very likely they're not looking for answers at all. They just need to know that they're not alone with whatever they're facing. Don't give them bumper sticker theology answers. We do that all the time. You see it all over Facebook when somebody says, man, I'm really hurting today or whatever. And then you'll see somebody on there, hey, when life hands you a lemon, make lemonade. Well, where is that in the Bible in the first place? You know, but, 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 but when your soul is in the throes of agony, you just need to know that someone loves you. You just need to know that you're not alone on this journey. You just need to know that someone is standing with you. You know, Jesus loved honest people, didn't he? E even honest people who were so ashamed of what they were being honest about that they couldn't even talk to him. All they could do was sob. The Bible says a broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. The, the wick that is smoldering, he will not snuff it out. 
We've been taught that if we're good, God will bless us. Haven't we been taught that? And, I, and, and there's, there's an element in truth there. It is true that God will bless us when we walk in obedience. But here's the problem. It's how we've interpreted that. We've interpreted that to mean that if we obey, and if we do good, if we do what's right, then everything will go well around us. That's a shallow interpretation of what it means for God to bless me. If, if you do right, if, if you do good, we say everything will work out well, everything will be happy, and every part of your life will be unbelievably blessed financially with your marriage and with your children. But the irony of that whole idea is that life shows us that that's a lie. Because even when I do everything in my power, even when I'm doing everything I know that is right and I'm trying to walk in those ways, there are still times in life that something happens that is painful. Anybody been there? And so here's what happens to us. Whether, whether it's been overt or not, we, we've been taught that when we face difficulties or hardship or pain, we, we immediately tend to think that God because we think that it, we're supposed to be happy in every single way, we immediately begin to think that God is disappointed or frustrated or angry with us and that he must be punishing us. I must be, I must be under his wrath. Why else would I lose my job? He must be angry with me. I mean, why else were things difficult in my marriage? He must be frustrated and we, and we think that we're under God's wrath. But I think part of the problem there is that we don't always understand what God's wrath is. We've talked about this some before, but we tend to equate God's wrath with sort of the big events in life. You know, like if some dude gets struck by lightning, we're like, oh, should have listened, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, or, 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 or earthquake or tornado or some disease or something like that. We tend to think that's the wrath of God. But, but I want you to know that the wrath of God is defined by Romans 1, not as some headlight of line event like a tornado or a lightning strike. And, and, and I think it is far more terrifying than any of those things. Keep your finger here and, and I'll show you, show you uh, the wrath of God so you can get really understand what wrath is. So, so turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I want you to see this. Keep your finger there in Hebrews. We're coming right back to it. But this is what it says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So right off the bat, it says the wrath of God is being poured out. All right. Then it goes on a little bit later to 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 list out to tell us how the wrath of God actually works itself out in the world. And I want you to notice what, what I want you to notice in verse 28, because uh, verse 28 is actually more terrifying than a lightning strike or tornado or an earthquake or any of those things. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, which is always kind of interesting to me that that's right in there. I mean, you know, they are inventors of evil and they don't make their bed. You know, it's just, it's just kind of a weird one for us because I don't think we understand how serious that is. But they murder and they don't vacuum. You know, I don't know. But here we go. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 31. The, the foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, according to this text, the wrath of God is revealed, not just when he sees some, something sinful and takes an action to bring punishment to it, but the wrath of God is revealed when he sees something sinful and does nothing. But he gives us over to those things that will destroy us. Which is much more terrifying than a lightning bolt striking me. You are experiencing the wrath of God every time he does not intervene to try to keep you from sinning. Now that may be that still small voice, maybe the voice of the spirit in your in your conscience. It may be something like that, or or it may be that some circumstance. How many of you have had times in your life where where you were saved by some circumstance? You know that you were right on the cusp of doing something maybe worse than you anything you ever thought that you would do, and then you were something happened, a phone call came, or somebody walked in, whatever it is, and you were saved by some circumstance. Listen, if that's ever happened, that is the grace and the mercy of God. How many of you have ever get were getting ready to do something wrong and you got caught right as you started to do it? That is the grace and the mercy of God, not His judgment. His judgment would be to let you do it because then you'll reap the benefits. You'll reap the, 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 you'll sow what, you'll reap what you have sown. Where he does not intervene, you've got wrath, you've got punishment. When you, when you get to the place that you can sin without fear, without regret, without a second thought, when your sin doesn't really bother you anymore, you very well may be living under the wrath of God and your only hope in that situation, is to fall on your knees in repentance. Okay, so why? You and I, Scripture tells us we have not been appointed to suffer wrath. So why then, if we're not experiencing the wrath of God, why do we face hardship? Why suffering? Why difficulty? Well, look back at verse 6 with me. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Now, there's an illustration here that he, he uses here and in verses following, but, but uh, we've got a problem because we live in a different day. I, I don't know when it started. I don't know how it happened. But somewhere along the way, some parents have become convinced that it's more important to be their child's friend than it is to train their child to maturity. Any, any teachers in here say amen to that? You've seen that? And where, where that gets confused, then this illustration gets completely lost. Now listen, I get it. I understand it. I, I want my daughters to like me. I want them to want to hang out with me. I, I don't want them just to love me because I'm their dad, but I want them to like me. Uh, but the truth is God's call on my life as a, as a father is not to be my child's best friend, maybe later when they're all grown up and mature, but, but, but God's call in my life is to have a higher degree of love for them than I do for my own comfort and my own desires. Because listen, every parent here that's worth their salt will tell you that it's very uncomfortable when they have to discipline their children. Right? It means... That sometimes, as a father, I have to be the enemy. And i got to be willing to do that. Sometimes, I have to inflict pain. 
And I'm not just talking about physical pain, although sometimes that's appropriate as well. You know, I mean, listen, truth is I'm a little bit bitter because when I was a kid, we did not have time out. You know, I mean, that was that was invented way, way beyond my years. You know, my in my day, time out was how long you were unconscious after your parents, you know, punched you and knocked you out cold. You know, that was time out for us back in those days. But and I'm not knocking time outs. I mean, we used them when our girls were little. But and we always reserved the corporal punishment for outright outright acts of rebellion we didn't you know they never got a spanking because they spilled their milk or something like that but if they looked us straight in the eye and we said be careful with that milk don't spill it and then they took that glass and looked me in the eye and said yeah guess what there's a spanking coming in that one because that was an outright act of rebellion but what i'm saying is this putting boundaries around my children for their maturity and the and their safety demonstrates a higher degree of love for them. For example, when my girls were little, uh, we worked very hard to make them uh, afraid of the street. We lived uh, for a time on a, on a busy highway in Reno, Nevada, and we wanted them afraid of the street. That's a good kind of fear. I mean, w- w- the cars were always flying by that house, so, so you know, we wanted them to be afraid of the street. So if there was a dead animal in the street, we'd take them out there and show them and say, this is what happened. No, we didn't really do that. <laughs> we, we, didn't, we didn't do that. I'm kidding. I made that up. We didn't do that. But, but we did work hard at putting boundaries around our da- daughters, and, and they know, they've always known where the boundaries were. But here's the thing. When they're growing up, and maybe a little bit now, you know, but not, I don't see it so much anymore, but every so often... They would begin to do things that they knew they were not supposed to do. And they would start to push against those boundaries. And in their, in their own weird way, what they were really doing, they were saying, do you, do you still love me? Are, are you still here? Are you still going to keep me safe? Are you, are you going to protect me? Th- that, that was my girls begging me for boundaries. Why? Because it's there in that place that they feel safe and loved. And and when they pressed against the boundaries, my love required me to press back. If I didn't love them, I wouldn't press back. I'd let them do whatever they wanted to do, even if it was going to destroy them. That is a picture of, of exactly what Romans 1 is talking about. God's going, I love you. That's why this is happening. You're pushing the boundaries. I'm just pushing back. You're getting comfortable. I'm just making sure you're, you're not falling asleep when you need to be awake. God's love for you requires him to discipline you to help you find maturity and safety instead of just leaving you alone. Because if he left you alone, you'd be suffering the wrath of God. I mean, has anybody here ever been around a kid that just has not, not, has never been disciplined? Anybody been around a child like that? Yeah. How adequately set for life is that child? You know, I mean, you, you, that child has almost certainly uh, been insured failure in life or even destruction in the future. Uh, they absolutely have. But God says, I, I love you too much for that. So I will wound you. Because I love you. This affliction, the sorrow, 
that he'll place on your, hair, on your head and on mine, it all has a point. It's not just for the sake of training. Look at verse 10. For they disciplined us, talking about our parents, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So we're told there exactly why he, he does this, why he works in our lives this way. He disciplines for our good. Now that may be hard for some of us to believe, just like it was hard for my girls to believe that when I disciplined them, it was actually for their good. Uh, not to mention that I was never able to convince them that it really does hurt me more than it hurt them. I was never able to convince them of that. My parents used to tell me that, and I was just like, well, Dad, just don't put yourself through it. You know, <laughs> that didn't go well, by the way. That's not a good way to go either, but... But so he disciplines us for our good. And, he, and, and, and here's what's really hard for us to believe. God is, is, is more committed to your good than you are. But the second thing it says that he disciplines us for our holiness. There's something that occurs in suffering that brings about the fullness of holiness. There's, there's something about suffering that detaches our love from the things of this world and makes us more and more like Jesus. All right, so let, let's keep reading because it's, it's not just for our good and it's not just for our holiness. But look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant or joyful. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's what I found. Where there cannot be joy, God will give peace. Where there cannot be joy, God will give peace. I mean, there are moments in life where joy just seems impossible to find. I've been there. You've been there. I've experienced it in my life. I've walked through times like this with other people in their lives. And listen, like, listen we, I've been there in this situation when you bury newborn children there there's joy is really hard to find there there is hope but 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 joy that's just that's a tough one and everybody likes to dance around this and try to redefine joy oh that's just not what joy means but but the truth is where joy seems impossible god brings peace god uses suffering pain and hurt even when it's caused by sinful people to train us in order to bring about holiness, peace, and righteousness for our good. And I want to add this here. and This is not part of the notes, but this is a little freebie the Lord just brought to my mind. I want you to understand that He uses the pain and suffering and the hurt, and the, uh, that are, even when it's caused by uh, sinful people, to train us in these ways, if we respond in the way that honors Him. If we don't, we don't get the growth. Then we just have the suffering. I'll actually get a little bit more into that a little bit. Now, I want you to see this because look what he's going to say next. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, okay, what's he connecting to? Therefore, since your pain is not meaningless, therefore, since uh, the difficulties you're enduring are not random, but they're for your good, for your holiness, for your righteousness, and for the peace of your soul, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Listen, you know that last part is almost sounding, it almost sounds like God's saying, listen, 
You need to pay attention to what I'm doing and let me do what I'm trying to do. Let me accomplish my purpose in you because I'm not going to give up on you. And that joint that, that, that is lame, if you don't, if you keep fighting on me, you're going to break your leg when I can heal you. Isn't that what it sounds like? What God is saying here is, listen, I am going to do something here in your life, in your heart. So don't give up. And don't fight me on it, because if you do, you're going to be causing more pain instead of finding healing. And, and he's not trying to scare you. He's not like trying to threaten you, you know. Come on, do it right or I'll break your leg. You know, that's not what he's, that's not what he's saying here. He's trying to protect you from you. And the biggest person I need protection from is me. There are two things, though, that can derail us from this process, and it will make it much more painful than God intends it to be. So let's take a look at these two things that can derail this process of righteousness, holiness, and peace working into our souls. And, and then I'm going to try to hurry, and then we're going, to, we're going to get done. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, the story of Esau actually points back to verse 5. Let's read verse 5, and then I'll explain what I mean. He says, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline or the training of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So two enemies, two enemies that prevent our sorrow and our pain and our suffering from producing the kind of holiness that will allow us to see the Lord. Here's what they are. First one is regarding lightly the Lord's discipline and training like Esau did. And the second one, we read it, I didn't, I didn't uh, highlight it, but it's bitterness. First, regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord. You remember the story of Esau. I'm not going to go back and read it, but Esau came in from, from the field. He'd been out hunting, hunting, and he was so hungry that he just said he was starving to death. Have you ever heard anybody say they're starving to death? And you look at them and you're like... I think you've got enough on you to last a few weeks, you know. <laughs> you know? But there, you know, Esau, he came in and he was so hungry. He said he was starving to death. If I don't get something to eat right now, I'm going to die. No, he wasn't going to. But that was, he, he was so ex exaggerating because he was paying attention to what his flesh wanted. And, and so his brother had made stew. And Esau, here's the thing. Esau was an heir to the covenant God that made, the, the covenant that God had made with Abraham for the entire world to be blessed through his bloodline. And what Esau did in that moment, he traded what God was going to do in him and through him to feed his own desire. That's the sin of Esau. That's why God judged it so, so uh, harshly. It was not because he did something foolish. It was because he traded what God was trying to do for a momentary moment, just a time, a moment of pleasure to feed his own desire. So, so let me explain this. How do we take the Lord's discipline lightly? Well, when you use your sorrow and difficulty and your hardship as a justification to live sinfully, you have taken lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here's how it works. Hardship or difficulty occurs, and then we turn to a sinful outlet and try to excuse our sin 
because of the pain, the pain and the sorrow. You know, like, like I can't tell you how many guys blame their, blame their porn addictions on their wives. I'm not kidding. They say, well, you know, if things, were, things are just difficult in the marriage, you know, is, isn't really cheating. If only she would, then I wouldn't. Well, you can't, you can't run to your sin and medicate yourself, whether it's with porn or alcohol or drugs or whatever, and then blame your actions on your pain. When you use your sorrow or your hardship as an excuse to sin, what you have done is you have traded away what God wants to accomplish in you to feed your own lusts and desires. That's the sin of Esau. When you use your pain as an excuse to sin, you are regarding lightly the very purpose of the pain. And that is to make you holy, to cause you to press into Christ. You say, well, I just don't have anywhere to run. Well, that's a lie. Because Christ was slaughtered on the, on the cross so that you would always have some place to run. Always. Regarding lightly, the Lord's discipline is when you and I use the difficulties of our lives as an excuse to sin. Well, I'm hurting. I'm tired. I just need to feel better. So I'll sin. I'll sin and then that'll make me feel better. And, and that never works out. Especially not in the long run. Because it always brings more sorrow than pain. And more pain. So, so the first thing that derails the process of righteousness, holiness, peace, is using the difficulties, difficulties of our life as justification to sin. When, when God wants to use them to grow you and to mature you. Number two is bitterness. In his book, Above All Earthly Powers, um, David Wells, very, very intelligent man, talks about Christ in a postmodern world. And he, and he mentions all these philosophers. And, and, and in a book, he came to the conclusion that we are the first generation that has ever lived that has embraced the idea that we can be completely and wholly happy in this life. We're the first generation who has lived ever in history that is not living for the next generation, but we are living for ourselves and for ourselves alone. That, that's, why, that's why a dad will say, well, I just, I'm just not happy, so I'll get a divorce and leave my family behind. Because he thinks he's bought into this belief that he can, he can be supremely happy in this life. And that if he just gets whatever he wants, he'll be happy. And he won't. He won't. So Wells asked the question, how's that working out for us? And it's, it's not. It's just gone horribly, horribly wrong. So what happens uh, when, when there is an expectation that everything is about you? Doesn't this sound like our world? When there's an expectation that everything is about you and that you can be supremely happy if you just get what you want, that, that, you, that you should never have to suffer that you'll, you should never have any difficulties, that things should always go well for you. What happens then when painful things happen? Well, the first place most people look to find out why they're hurting is other people. Okay, I'm not happy, so why, what is my wife not doing to, to make me happy? Because somebody's to blame for this. I mean, it's not me, but somebody's to blame. And, and so then you, you begin to say, well, if I could just 
get, you know, just this much more money if this circumstance would, be, would change, if, if this person would just do this, if that person would just do that, then I would finally be happy. And what ends up happening is, is, is the root of bitterness begins to take hold in your life and begins to destroy everything around you because you're never going to find that, uh, that, uh, that, that fictitious happiness that you're looking for and you're constantly looking for something else and you're constantly blaming everybody else around you and all of a sudden you become bitter at, at God and you begin to say things like, well, if there was a God in heaven, this would never happen. I can't believe this is happening to me. I don't deserve to have this happen to me. And when you think life is all about you and you think that you deserve to be supremely happy in this world and get everything that you want, then you become to be, be, begin to become bitter and angry toward other people and toward God. If you've ever met a bitter person, somebody who's so bitter against God, They've bought into this. And you, end up, you begin to rail at a God who loves you so deeply that although he longs to bless you, he will not do so at your own destruction. Instead, he allows you to suffer in order to crowd you back to him. Many, many times he allows suffering to come into our lives because we begin to wander and he begins to say, I need them, I need them to come back to me. It's sort of like a shepherd using a prod. When the sheep begins to go into the, a place where it's not safe, before he gets out into the mouth of the lion, the shepherd begins to poke and to prod and he begins to make that sheep uncomfortable where they are to say, get back in the flock, get back where I, where I need you. This is where I can protect you. This is where I can provide for you. I can't keep you safe out there. You need to come back. And God uses pain and sorrow in our lives very often in that, exactly that same way to press us, to prod us, to crowd us back to him. When you're bitter, you find yourself railing against the very love of God that's trying to rescue you. It's damaging. Now look at verse 18. I, I promise I'm going to try to hurry here because I know the food's calling. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is a reference to the Israelites standing at Mount Sinai. He's saying, you have not come to Mount Sinai. He's talking about the Israelites after they left Egypt, they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and God's glory is all over the mountain and there's thunder and darkness and all this stuff and God begins to speak, not just to Moses, but he begins to, begins to speak to all of Israel at Mount Sinai and they are all absolutely horrified by this. And so they actually beg God not to speak to them anymore. Can you imagine that? I mean, here we are today, we're like, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. And Israel's like, uh, no thanks. They tell Moses, Moses said, you know, that's really scary there. We don't want to go up and talk to him. Why don't you do it? <laughs> 
And even Moses is like not really giddy about this opportunity before him because even Moses says, I tremble with fear because of the overwhelming power in the presence of God. And the rule that they mentioned here was that if anything touched the, the, the uh, mountain, if anything touched Mount Sinai, even if it was a, a, a sheep or something else that wandered off, if it touched that, it was defiling the holy ground and it had to be killed. And so for them coming to Mount Sinai, the presence of God was this kind of dangerous, deadly, terrifying place. And the scriptures just said, that's not where you live anymore. That's the whole point of that passage. You don't live there. You don't come to Mount Sinai. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of, of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels at festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So listen, this whole thing that we're talking about, this whole thing with discipline, fatherhood and all these things, it is difficult for some of us in this room and some people that are watching on the live stream because the words father and discipline conjure up in your mind some things that are not so good. Some of us came from homes where those words do not communicate anything right or anything good. Because if you had a horrible father, when you hear the word father, you don't think of anything good. But you know what? When I'm sitting on the couch with one of my daughters and, and I put my arm up to, to, to give her a hug or to put my arm around them, they don't flinch. They don't flinch. She, she doesn't go, ah, ah. They don't. Usually what happens, even at this age, they, they usually smile and at least for a second will snuggle in to give me a hug. My daughters do not walk around our house just wondering when dad is going to snap. My daughters are not nervous around me. They do not fear me. They don't. And I know, you know, here we go with the Well, there should be a good kind of fear. And there, there is. There is. I don't, I don't doubt that. But, but if my daughter spills something during dinner, she doesn't wonder if I'm going to snap and beat the trash out of her because she made a mess. You're not on Mount Sinai. You hear me? You are not on Mount Sinai. God is not watching you waiting to erupt in violent anger to all of your mistakes. That's not where we are. God's not in heaven watching you eat breakfast and going, oh, hey, that was a huge breakfast. That's, that's gluttony. You know, I'm, I'm just going to have to strike you down. Sorry. I'm just tired of it. I mean, I'm dealing with this whole North Korea thing and there's stuff going on all over the world and in Europe, people don't even like me. I've just had it, bam! And then you, you are the one who receives the brunt of all those frustrations. That, you know, and we kind of laugh at that thought, but, but I think a lot of us think that we're on Mount Sinai and that we had better watch it because anytime anything goes badly, then God must be frustrated and enraged. You are not on Mount Sinai. When there is suffering, and this is a hard thing to hear. This is a hard thing, but I want you to understand this. When there is suffering, we know that God is in control. Don't we? How many of you believe God is in control? Yes. 
when there is suffering, he's still in control. But that becomes a gift, that suffering becomes a gift birthed out of love for the hope of your own good. That God, even in your suffering, is doing something for your good. You have a father whose plan for you goes well beyond today and whose commitment to your good and to his glory is so great that he gave his own son. This is our father. So don't ignore him if you hear him. Because hear, hear me, the weight of your life. You know what I'm talking about when I say the weight of your life? Everybody, you have those moments where life is heavy. Some of you are carrying weight right now. The weight of your life was meant to produce your good, your holiness, your peace, and your righteousness. J.I. Packer, a very well-known author, he says this. He, he says, still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Maybe some of us need to ask for forgiveness because I think we have defined mercy our own way, but the truth is sometimes mercy brings tears. Sometimes mercy brings sorrow. Sometimes the mercy of God is when we get caught or some sorrow that causes us to press into him because we've been wandering. That's the mercy of God. And I think if we were really honest about it, if we really thought deeply about it, I think everybody in this place would say that the times when we have grown closest to Christ were the times when we were hurting more deeply than anyone else ever really knew, or we were just frustrated out of our minds, or we were fearful about our future. Whenever something like that was going on, often that's the time when we feel His presence more near than ever before. He loves you so much that he will not just let you run headlong into destruction. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of his appearing. Pray together with me. Father, I just pray that you would, you would just sear into the really deep places of our hearts that you are for our good and that you, you have not, as you say in the scriptures, appointed us to suffer wrath, but you have given us mercy. And I thank you, God, that you do not allow me to decide what is good for me. I, th I think about how unloving that would be for an earthly father to behave that way, to, to let his two-year-old daughter decide what's good for her. I think about how badly she would hurt herself. I think about how confident she would be about her decisions, no matter how poor those decisions were. I thank you that you love us too much to let us decide what's good for us. You who are infinite and, and, and you, you send us exactly what we need. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and my sisters in this room who find themselves in difficult places in life. They're dealing with suffering. They're dealing with pain. Maybe nobody else knows. Maybe they've been guilty of wearing the mask and not letting anybody in, not letting anybody see it. But 
But Lord, uh, those who are just finding themselves tired or alone or are just sick of things or just caught up in the struggle of inward sin that's just demoralizing, they just can't seem to get free from it. Lord, for them, I just pray for peace, even if joy seems impossible. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, as we head across the street, as we go eat our lunch together, I pray, God, that we would all day today and all week long, we would just be overwhelmed with the kind of Heavenly Father we have. Now, Lord, I pray that where there is bitterness, you would reveal it so that we can repent before you. I pray, Lord, that where men and women have been using their pain and their difficulties as justification for their sin, that you would just break our hearts over our foolishness. And God, I pray that we would just be in awe of you today as we leave this building. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I, I don't know where anybody is. and I don't even know how to give an altar call of, for a message like this other than just simply to say, how many of you would say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. So I'm dealing with some stuff. I'm hurting, walking through some difficulties. I, I, I don't know. I don't need, know what it is. I don't need to know, but that's you and you say pastor I want you to pray for me and pray that God would use these circumstances to develop in me what he wants to develop that I'd be willing to submit to his discipline and his training even in the midst of my suffering even if it's caused by other people that he I would see the fruit of his work in my life as I submit to him if that's you and say, Pastor, I want you to pray that prayer for me. Would you slip your hand up right where you are? Yes. Yes. Oh, they're all over the place. All over the place. Father, you see every hand. You see every heart. You see those that are watching the live stream that are, that are dealing with the same issues in their life. And God, I just pray that, Lord, in, in the name of Jesus, that you would strengthen their weak knees. That, God, that you would help them to hear your voice, that they would respond in a way that honors and glorifies you to the problems around them. And, and Lord, that as they see those things, instead of pointing fingers and saying, that person's the cause, or why does God let this happen, that, God, that they would just simply find peace in you, even when they have trouble discovering joy. And I pray that your peace would lead them into righteousness, that you would, you would grow them in holiness, that you would work for their good. Defined by you, not defined by them, but they're good as you see it. And Lord, I pray that you would grow them. You would make them who you want them to be. <clears throat> that you would have your way, even in the midst of their pain and their suffering. And give them peace. Help them to, to, to follow you with patience. To just trust you. And say, Lord, I know you're going to use this. Even though you didn't cause it. Even though somebody else is doing it, I know, God, you're still going to use it as a tool in your hand to shape me into who you want me to be. So, God, have your way. Chip away. Do whatever you want to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.